Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. It's become one of the cliches of endless discussions about lockdown, how we've all got to know our neighbours better. It makes me wonder why it took a global pandemic to make this happen. Were we too self-preoccupied, busy or idle to pay attention to those around us? Neighbourhoods and the neighbours that make them are our topics this week. In a recent edition of The Naked Scientists, Richard Bellingham of the University of Strathclyde talked about some ideas that would make activist neighbourhood folk prick up their ears. We know things like using different colours and intensity of street lighting can influence behaviours. And we know that also in some cities they've tried doing things like pulsing the street lights to indicate that the police are aware that something is happening and they're on their way. And this has actually been proved to be by and large just as effective as the presence of a police car once people understand that there's a relationship there. With me to discuss neighbours and neighbourhoods, and perhaps also the people who police them, are Julie Siddiqui, co-founder of the Jewish and Muslim Women's Network, and Dr Julian Hargreaves, Senior Research Fellow here at the Wolf Institute. Julian is leading a project called the Wolf Diversity Study, which, amongst other things, thinks about our neighbourhoods and how much we think they're changing. Well, I promise not to cue you with pulsating lights, but let's get down to the nitty gritty. Julie. How well do you get on with your neighbours? I think the answer is that I could do better. So I try my best, or I feel like I have over time, to sort of reach out, um, engage with my neighbours through giving them gifts and food and things. And I sort of treat the the people that live around me as my neighbours here. Um, 
But I feel I could do more. I always feel like I could do more. And if somebody, for example, passes away, which happened a couple of years back, and I hadn't really engaged with that person, I actually felt very guilty because I thought I could have done much more. Um, And similarly, an elderly person recently, I think, went into a care home and I had had some interaction with her, but not as much as I could have. So I do take it seriously and I sort of feel it's quite a, a big responsibility for me to engage with my neighbours and I talk about it with my kids a lot but I always feel like I could be doing more. Julian could you be doing more? I would say on the whole I get on with my neighbours um, fairly well. There's a, a curious thing I, I live um, in a small town between London and Cambridge and during my days at the Wolf Institute um, I spend a lot of time thinking about minority communities whether they're ethnic or religious minority communities and every evening I go home to a place that is probably best described as super non-diverse it is very very predominantly white but what you've got where I live is a very dominant kind of white British culture which has actually worked to bring the town together so just to give you an example there are lots of pubs there's a drinking culture The place has returned conservative MPs and conservative councillors for as long as anyone can remember. So there's that sort of similarity politically with with people. Um, There are sort of civic groups, you know, such as the Rotary Clubs and those types of things, um, which, again, have worked to sort of bring the town together. Now, I'm not saying this is a perfect utopia. I'm not sure how my non-white neighbours would feel about this sort of dominant culture. But it has worked in some ways to tie the people who are here together. So it sounds like the idea of neighbourhood is, 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 is more than geographical. It has to be more than geographical. What, what, what's it like in, in your neck of the woods then, Julie? Is, does, what, is what Julian's saying uh, echo? Uh, I'd imagine Slough is more diverse than um, uh, the midway between Cambridge and London. Yeah, I mean, it is it is diverse. And in fact, what Julian described there in terms of his relationship with his neighbours is similar to mine. So where I say I could do better, that's me being critical of myself. But in terms of knowing people's names and helping them and giving them things, that that's all there. Um, yes, it is diverse. I do feel when I hear the word neighbourhood, it does make me think of geography and those people that sort of live around us um from an islamic perspective it's an interesting one because there's some teachings that are quite specific actually about the rights of neighbors and it's, it's a, there's a lot of emphasis on on that which is why i think muslims often have it quite sort of fresh in their mind one of the problems which i hope as a country we can sort of overcome particularly when you're talking about people who are from different backgrounds is this idea that we all just live in our own house and we don't really go out. When I was growing up, yes, I grew up in an area a bit very undiverse, as Julian has described, also with so much positive. Partly it was a sort of a cul-de-sac of what, about 100 sort of houses and we all just lived there. But there was definitely much more of a sense that people were in and out of each other's homes or just interacting more. And I think now we've just got to a point where people are so sort of individual and you almost feel like you're encroaching on them if you even knock on the door sometimes. I know I have to sort of get over that. I think this idea of um, neighbourhood and community and place and sort of localities is really interesting. And from a social science perspective, there's um, a bit of a tension, I think, um, when, when it comes to looking at people who 
see place and locality as being very important and other people who create collective identities not around local places but around other characteristics other factors in their lives and these these two diff different types of groups have been described i think very effectively as two emerging tribes within british politics the the the, the, the somewheres and the anywheres and it was i think um a lot of light was shed on these two tribes in a fantastic book called the road to somewhere by david goodhart and in it he describes um, the Anywheres as being a culturally dominant tribe out of the two. And these are people who are highly educated, highly mobile socially, probably left home to go to another town or city to attend university, probably have spent time in London or abroad. And they have a very different outlook to the Somewheres who tend to be rooted in a certain place, perhaps educated to uh, a lower level, perhaps um, perhaps more likely to have identities which are given to them by the anywheres. So we think about Yorkshire miners or Scottish farmers or the Geordie working classes, what David Goodhart calls uh, ascribed identities. And this, this sort of tension between the two groups, I think, has perhaps been seen when it comes to things like the EU referendum, when it comes to local political activism and engagement. Um, and you know what 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 is to be done about this tension is probably beyond the scope of this podcast. But I think seeing those two groups, one which places a lot of value in 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 um, geographical space, and the other group which, which tends not to, I think is a really interesting dynamic in the country at the moment. It's interesting, actually. Can I just say that um, I actually feel if you take those descriptions, I grew up as a somewhere person and I'm now an anywhere person. And uh, that's interesting that you sort of put it like that because I haven't really thought about it with those words before. Maybe I need to read that book as well um, because I very much see the people I kind of grew up around, even in my own family, as, you know, some, sometimes there's a limit on, they limit themselves or they feel that everything has to be very local. I think about my older sister very much so, you know, in terms of her sort of, she was happy, happy with being local her daughter living up the road her other daughter over there or someone else you know and I don't really relate to it I, I feel like you know much as I in in one part of me as a mum now I'd love to have all of my kids living about you know within a mile radius that isn't going to happen because we've already made them feel that they can and should go out and do what they need to do and I also feel that's a benefit as well actually the model kind of is becoming a little bit creaky. It's about five years old now, and it has been challenged on a few levels. Um, Julie, I think what you, you've said about your own personal characteristics and outlook is maybe a combination of two or seeing both sides. And I think also, if you look at the southeast of England, I think you've got some somewheres developing from a community of anywheres. You've got people who have moved to the southeast who are now taking the advantage of the labour market, the housing market, the top universities, the top tech firms, the top accounting and law firms, etc. So these people are becoming rooted in the southeast and taking on sort of quasi-somewhere attributes. 
Would you agree that the lockdown has actually reinforced our understanding of the local neighbourhood, the really local neighbourhood? There's been some quite a lot of uh, discussion about um, our understanding of community. But what impact has the lockdown had uh, on uh, on neighbourhood? Um, Julie? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I really have very much been thinking about this um, for the last few months because I've seen it with my own eyes as well locally. And I sort of reached out. I, I've been doing a lot of work in interfaith spaces and things maybe outside of my area. And when this happened, because I was sort of home based more, I reached out to the manager of the food bank, etc. And said, you know, what can I do? How can I be of use locally? And then I set about with a person I'd never met before, and actually we've still not really met in person, only much of it is on the phone and digitally, to help set up a mutual aid group here, which we didn't have. And the mutual aid model is fascinating and and has been brilliant all over the country in terms of very, very localised community organising to the point where even in a town like ours in Slough, which isn't that big, we put out a call, do people want to help others in their local area and then we split the town down and down to each individual area of the town to the point where you want people to be introduced to neighbours literally on their street or the street next door to them that need help. It's been really powerful and very humbling. Even for me, I've discovered people that are sort of maybe slightly further down the road than I am normally engaged with regularly, who I literally did not know lived there. And, you know, a couple of them who who are really struggling day to day forget covid just generally and this kind of exacerbated it for them so i feel now a very very sort of passionate advocate for let's all look again at kind of good old-fashioned community organizing in that sense and what does that mean and very very localized organizing and these mutual aid models you know are interesting because they've been used when there's flooding and things like that and have really come into their own we're halfway around the block You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Julian Hargreaves and Julie Siddiqui. We're discussing the idea of the neighbourhood. And here's Richard Bellingham with another cunning plan to improve safety. This one is sometimes referred to as whitening lampposts. If light is whiter, for example, it means that it's actually easier to recognise people. And that means people feel less secure about um, uh, engaging in criminal behaviour if the light is brighter and whiter. Also, if the, the light is brighter, it means that the general public also feel more secure about using the streets in ways that are more constructive, more comfortable. And if there are more people on the streets, it's actually less likely that person-to-person crimes occur in the first place. Some years ago, I wanted to write a book called The Theology of Street Lighting. I visited Stamford Hill, where there were very strictly practising Muslims and Jews who came together to go to the council to ask for better street lighting because they were concerned about their children walking home on their own. Now, Julie, you work in Muslim-Jewish relations. What neighbourly activities are going on between Muslims and Jews? Yeah, um, I would probably say not enough, uh, specifically between these two groups. Actually, you mentioned Stanford Hill is probably quite is quite unique anyway in the country, it seems to me. Um, And yes, while there is activity, as you've just mentioned, it seems where they go and represent together to a local authority or they, they sit on different boards and things, which I think is very positive. Actual interaction and friendship in groups like that is not really happening 
enough. So that example you give in Stamford Hill, yes, there is some interaction, but I'm not sure you could say they are this friendship developing through between families, for example, it's a bit more formal. What we have found is through the work of Nisana Sheen, for example, which is trying to work between these communities through women, really trying to say to people, get to know each other as friends. You know, for, for, for example, don't talk about Israel from point A because it doesn't work. Actually build the friendship and the trust. And what does that mean? It's like any friendship and relationship. Put the work in, invite people to your each other's houses. You know, you end up getting to know each other as real friends then all the stuff that you want to might want to talk about or not comes up. Julian, you've looked into the question of friendship, haven't you, in some of the research you've been undertaking? Yes, I've been thinking a lot about friendship recently. And um, what Julia's just said, I'm sort of fascinated by, actually, because this notion uh, of friendship, uh, you know, between different groups, is something which, on a common sense level, feels important, feels significant. And actually, there's overwhelming academic evidence from from social psychology to show that friendship has a direct relationship with reduced prejudices. Now, when you turn to the government's efforts for these things, whether it's national or local, if you think about these big government projects like social cohesion, uh, integration, counter-extremism, all these big kind of buzzy buzzwords and projects, the role of friendship within them is strangely underplayed. So you might have in the recent integration strategy from the government, an idea that better integration might lead to more friendships between groups. But you don't hear many policymakers saying that better friendships between groups might lead to improved integration. It's always, it's always as if somehow the friendship element is the output, the outcome, the consequence not the driver of better um, relations. But I think what Julie says, and I don't mean to speak for her, but it sounds like you're slightly countering that notion. And actually, if friendships can be developed amongst willing individuals, then perhaps stronger ties between the groups they represent or the backgrounds they represent might be, might be encouraged and improved. And I think that role of friendship is, is, is much undervalued within policy circles. Yeah, I mean, we've certainly within the Sun and over the years that I've seen, for example, interfaith work, I've often felt, and I look back, I always, I never sort of dismiss any because I think all of it is noble and brilliant and there's always good that comes from everything. That's how I see it anyway. People are making an effort. But what I have felt is that interfaith work has often been more on a meeting level or a bit more formal or people approaching a government initiative together or whatever. Whereas actually, if you go right back to what I would consider to be basics and make it all about friendship, which is what we've tried to do with Nisana Shim, and it is working. And part of it, I think, is because once you become actual friends with someone, i.e. you go out for a coffee, you go to the cinema, you do the things that friends do, you very quickly realise that we're all the same in many ways underneath. And we are different. We respect it. We are we learn about each other's differences, we respect all that. But a lot of the basic fundamentals about being a human being, about being a parent, about, you know, being in a neighborhood. What do you worry about? Where are you going to park your car? Have you got enough money to go on holiday? Where are your kids going to school? Are you going to get into the grammar school? What, you know, all of that stuff. How's your career, your work life balance? Those things come out when you discuss it as friends. Then you can build on that and the trust and all of the things that come with the friendship 
are there. So I'd like to see exactly what you said, flip it and make that the thing. Make that the thing. And the rest of it, I think, follows much better. I could not agree more. And the, 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 the overwhelming evidence backs that up all the way. Um, one development uh, in recent years that we've all noticed is the growth, literally the growth, um, of these massive tower blocks. What impact do they have on neighbours today, but also in the future? Julie? Yeah, I mean, I've thought about this. When I see them, I sometimes sort of cringe because I think, gosh, what are we creating? In a way, we seem to have, anyway, over time, got rid of the idea of big tower blocks and took them down and tried to build different sorts of housing. And now we're seeing them re-emerge again. And I go through parts of London in particular and look at them and think there's no space in between one block and another. There's very little green of anything. There's no communal space whatsoever. So it's actually going to be, I think, hard and people need to work very hard to make sure that within those blocks, even though you can fit masses of people in, it seems, that seems to be the the goal in a way for these private developers or whatever. We need to make sure that we don't just leave them to it because I'm not sure that people are going to necessarily connect, even though they're very close together. You open your door, you go out, you do your work, you come back, you shut the door. There's a very real possibility, I think, and it's already happening where people just keep themselves to themselves. I'm not sure how positive that's going to be. And it also brings up a thought to me about Grenfell and the Grenfell Tower. And what's come out of that is, in a way, what people say in that area, we've been doing neighbourliness really well over many years despite a lot of discrimination you know in in terms of the institutional racism etc that we've really found out about in a in a very stark way the connection and the love in a way that people had for each other in that tower is quite phenomenal actually that's why it was even more um heartbreaking and tragic to see it on every level because it literally has destroyed that community and that neighbourhood within that tower, and then also the impact it's had on wider. And I think that most people who don't live in neighbourhoods like that have not really understood it properly. And there's all sorts of stuff about it being, you know, the most well-off borough in, in the country in some ways, and in other ways you've got a poor and a rich and all of that. So it brings out all of that. But I just think this feeling of neighbourhood, and that that has been strengthened even more, of course, after what happened. So it's interesting and you can't just allow these things to happen. They have to be developed and there's all sorts of things there. But I just feel this whole thing about towers and blocks and flats, however posh and expensive they might be, we can't just leave it to chance to to ensure that people actually meet and get on. I think it's important that we make it happen somehow. We've touched on changes in neighbourhoods and in our communities and and one thing that has changed that many of us have noticed in cities is the growth of gated communities, which has always struck me as, as fairly intimidating. Are they a negative presence, Julian? Well, I think in modern debate and contemporary debate, the idea of a gated community, I think for a lot of people, does trigger a certain emotional response, a concern about exclusion, about the separation of the rich from the poor, uh, for example. And if we look at some of the gated communities in America, particularly within um, the Southwest, I'm thinking Southern California, um, Nevada, particularly, there is a, a rich and growing tradition of gated communities, sometimes built around uh, shared interests, such as golf and fishing. Sometimes uh, they attract people who 
not necessarily there because of security, but because of a sort of lifestyle. And they've had some uh, positive impacts on their surroundings. Lots of um, local authorities love gated communities because get people who live there pay tax and they pay the sort of taxes that normally go for the upkeep of streets, but they also pay for the upkeep of their own streets. So for a lot of local authorities in America, these taxes become a, a good source of revenue. In places like China, the gated community is a very traditional uh, place to live and doesn't trigger those um, those sort of concerns. Well, we're drawing towards a close, um, and I don't want to end without asking Julie about some um, Muslim understandings of what neighbourhood means from uh, religious tradition and uh, Islamic history. Some, it's always sort of fascinating this, and again, because of the situation we've been in for the last few months, and we also had Ramadan as well, um, so that's always a time of thinking about people reaching out to their neighbours, giving food, feeding homeless people, etc. It becomes sort of heightened. There's a lot in Islamic teachings about neighbours. There's some stuff around what, what, who are your neighbours, and some will say it means 40 houses around you. Some will say 40 houses to the right, to the left, and in front and behind. So I think people's understanding of who their neighbours are needs to be, it's quite personal in a way because it depends on physically where you actually live but the concept is very much there and there was once uh, and, and more than once but there's lots of teachings from uh, Prophet Muhammad about neighbours and he once was quoted as saying that Angel Gabriel who of course he you know the understanding for Muslims is that Gabriel brought the revelation from God through Muhammad to the rest of us through the Quran um, and Muhammad actually said I thought that um, Gabriel was mentioning neighbours so much, essentially, that they would become like an heir, meaning that part of your inheritance had to be given to your neighbours. They had rights over you. So there's this definitely this very, very strong concept in Islamic teachings about neighbours having rights over you. And that's where I feel often people then feel there's a responsibility. And there's also something very powerful, which I'll end on, which is about making sure that your neighbours feel safe from you. So, you know, I sit here right now thinking about who do I see as my neighbours, certainly in this immediate area where I live. Do they feel safe from us? Yes, I think they do. You know, they don't know the ins and outs of us. We don't know the ins and outs. We interact. I give them things. I make sure that they feel safe from us. That's really important to me. I've given all of my neighbours my number, even before COVID. So if you ever need anything, let us know. Whether they do or not is now up to them. But at least I feel I've done that. So I said to my kids at the beginning of Ramadan again this year, it's up to you when you start to move into your own houses, your own neighbourhoods. Make sure that your neighbours know who you are and feel safe. And obviously for us as Muslims nowadays, with an air of feeling, there's a lot of sort of, um, you know, CCTV on us as Muslims, perhaps because of terrible things that have happened locally in the world. Um, in a way, it's even more important to make sure that those misconceptions and misunderstandings of who we are as Muslims, as Muslim neighbours, we do our bit to make sure that people feel safe and that there's a, there's a connection rather than them feeling somehow suspicious or not sure what to think. So I feel that for me, it's always been there right from the beginning. Nowadays, with, a, with an air of feeling that there's a different sort of sense around terrorism, etc., how do we as individual families make sure that the people around us don't have suspicion and actually feel safe from us. For me, that's also part of our role as well as Muslim citizens in Britain. 
It's interesting that the Bible has one command, the famous command of Leviticus, to love your neighbor as yourself, um, which Jesus also says in the New Testament. But on 36 different occasions, um, the Bible also says to love the stranger. And that actually is much, much harder than getting to know your neighbor. But I'd like to leave you with a brief account of how I understand some neighborhoods worked in the Balkans during the Ottoman era. Houses had two gates, one opening onto the public thoroughfare and the other into a network of alleys connecting the immediate close neighborhood. Visitors could choose their gate. It seems like a nice balance between the public and the semi-private, all the more striking because of the tragic way neighborhoods tore themselves apart during the 1990s war. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks to my guests, Julian Hargreaves and Julie Siddiqui. And thanks to you too for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts or reflections of your own, you can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. And let us know what subjects you'd like to hear more about and how you'd like us to cover them. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.